And now, here's your host, Michael Hill. Welcome to another Newark Today on WBGO 88.3 FM and online at WBGO.org. I'm your host, Michael Hill of NJTV News. We are talking tonight about policing in America and policing in Newark. This is a show that's going to run an hour and a half long tonight. We have four guests here in the studio, and we certainly want to hear from you. The number to call here is 844-677-9283, 844-677-9283. We hope you have some questions for our guests this evening. We have four of them. Let's uh, introduce them. Of course, the Honorable Mayor of Newark, Raz Baraka, who's always a regular guest on our monthly show. Mr. Mayor, thank you very much for joining us. We also have uh, the Public Safety Director, Anthony Ambrose, joining us this evening. And we have Larry Hamm, the Chair of the People's Organization for Progress. And we have the Federal Independent Monitor, Mr. Peter Harvey, joining us as well. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. I want to start with this question. Where are we with policing in America right now? Mr. Mayor, let's start with you, sir. With policing in America? Yes. (laughs) Where are we right now? You can see what's happening around the country on TV is like live in in, in living color. So you can see what's happening with policing. I think that uh, at this point, there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, uh, Obviously and clearly, there's a, a lot. Uh, of restructuring, a lot of retraining, a lot of reimagining that has to happen around the country. Uh, you know, it, it is very clear and obvious by what we see that is going on that many of us knew was happening uh, in many of these police agencies already. So, um, you know, I can only speak from what I see happening uh, and what I know historically has happened in our community. I'm not in those cities, so I can't give you a real, uh, you know, kind of synopsis of of what's going on and why it's happening. But I know in general uh, what's been taking place in our communities and has been taking place in our communities for decades. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mr. Ambrose, I'll ask you the same thing. In in terms of policing, as you see it, it, not just in Newark, but across the country, the demands, the protests, what people are saying about policing in America right now. So uh, the same thing, I'll echo what the mayor said, you know, from what I've seen on uh, TV and and, and news clips and and reading, I I think that uh, the mayor hit on something when he says training. I think that for for all uh, the excessive force complaints and and, and people that are losing their lives, I think police training has to severely change. I think that the paramilitary uh, approach that we have in police training uh, has to change significantly across the globe. Uh, I've, I've been to Sweden where they go to school for a, for, for a year, uh, and, and a, for four weeks you learn self-defense tactics, and the most of the time you're doing a theory, and, and, and you're learning how to be a guardian. Uh, most of the time, being a police officer out here, you're a guardian more than you're a warrior. And I think that uh, that has to change. I think significantly change, and I could talk about it in New Jersey, that police training, that for, for, for you know, 26 weeks, the recruit goes to the academy, he or she is screamed at, hollered at, they're ready to get her prepared for, or him prepared for the street. When that person goes on the street, the citizen becomes the recruit. The things that were told and hollered at, they do it to the citizen. And I think there has to be reforms to police training in New Jersey if you really want to change things. Are you having that done with officers who are joining the Newark Police Division? Well, we're mandated by the Police Training Commission in New Jersey, but I will say uh, 
with the federal monitor and the consent decree. We give them an extended seven weeks of training uh, that we do, better community relations, uh, the body-worn camera. Uh, we give them immigration, de-escalation. We give them eight hours of it and uh, 40 hours total. We bring them back. So I, I think it's, 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 it's a transparency. Uh, I think it's very important. Uh, I think it's a cookie cutter training with the police training a state gives you. I think there's significant different needs in each community. And, and I think that an urban center versus a suburban center, uh, it's different, uh, totally different. But I think that they shouldn't look at certain things. You know, we, we, we focus on, uh, you know, uh, we, we have a, a more of array of, of different types of, uh, of people uh, than in some, some things. Uh, so we, we try to build a trust we, we and engage them in, in a way uh, for the last six years. Uh, you know, the people could have a bad day. We can't have a bad day. And I think that we could get on these shows and we could talk if the state of New Jersey and training does not change that power military way uh, it's needed certain times, okay? But we need to know more of interaction and scenario-based. Uh, you know, me and Peter Harvey, one time, we, we went round and round in a good way that a resident isn't a person that pays taxes and lives in a house with white picket fence. A resident's the person that you arrest. A resident's the person that you may go and he may be panhandling. That's a resident. Uh, and, uh, you know, we changed that in the city of Newark over the last six years. And I think police training is a key key factor uh, what's going on in policing throughout throughout the uh, the, the United States. Larry, I'll ask you the same question. Yes, uh, yeah. have to be across yes. the board. Okay, uh, pardon me, Mr. Ambrose. Uh, Larry, the same question to you: what, the the state of policing right now, what you're seeing in in uh, across the country, and certainly here in Newark. I mean, the the protests of of May 30th was made international headlines here in Newark. Yes, and. Um, that had a lot to do um, with the historical uh, movement that we've had in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, it, it had a lot to do with the frequency of protests of the People's Organization for Progress and other organizations. And it, it had a whole lot to do with the cooperation uh, between ourselves and the uh, administration, the mayor of Newark and his administration. Uh, all of those things and other factors uh, combined to produce the outcome. I mean, we've had so many demonstrations against police brutality that on May 30th, you know, everything was routine except for the 12,000 people that show up because usually our demonstrations are much smaller than that. Uh, but that was really the outstanding thing. The other thing was that the mayor, uh, Mayor Baraka marched with us that day. He was there for the entire event from beginning to end. And I'm glad that it ended in such a way that the headline the next day was thousands march demanding justice for George Floyd and all victims of police brutality. But in terms of the state of policing in America today, uh, I think we're um, on the verge of seeing some some major changes because people all over this country are in an uproar. Black people are still being killed in the streets like animals uh, by police. Um, you know, I know there have been some reforms put in place, but the fact is that the police kill nearly 1,000 people every year in the United States, give or take a few. 
And about 38% of those tend to be African-American. And African-Americans tend to be 48% of the unarmed people who are killed. So while there have been some reforms put in place, obviously enough is not being done to make it clear to police that they have to stop the, mur the unjust murder of civilians, brutalizing civilians, violating their constitutional rights, and policing in a racially discriminatory way. Mr. Mayor, I want to ask you about reforms, but first I want to get Mr. Harvey's take on it. Mr. Harvey, the state of policing right now in the USA, in New Jersey, and certainly in Newark. We might very well be at a tipping point uh, in the United States. One thing that has helped tremendously is real-time video, cell phone video, and other video sources because I think Americans, and in particular white Americans, have seen something in the last 30 days that was completely unimaginable to many. If you had described to many Americans over lunch or dinner what happened to George Floyd, most people, most white people would have said to you, no way, police don't act that way. And yet the nation saw it, in fact the world saw it in broad daylight by an officer who looked into the camera completely indifferent to the fact that he was killing Mr. Floyd, and more importantly, indifferent to what he believed would be the consequences. So we may be at a tipping point, a tipping point in this regard. I think it's requiring a lot of people to take a hard look at, first of all, the intake process for police officers. Who is being hired as a police officer and why? Secondly, what is the educational level? And should that change? Thirdly, why do police departments have uh, equipment uh, suitable for an army, armored personnel carriers and the like? And it's, it's causing a, a number of questions to be asked, hard questions. I think also what is uh, being discussed and exposed are these kinds of issues, such as what are the institutional impediments to reform? So in some states, there are laws that uh, prevent a progressive chief or progressive mayor or progressive police director to make a real substantial change in a police department. They may take disciplinary action against an officer, but that officer a year, a year and a half later may come back with back pay. Uh, also, it's causing people to question if this officer is engaged in criminal behavior and is indicted and convicted for it. How is it that they receive a full pension? Uh, it's one thing to say they get back the money that they put into the pension plan. It's quite another thing to say they should also get the city's money that the city put in as a match to whatever they were putting in. So I, I think that some very hard questions are being asked. And I think you are seeing the beginning of a nationwide reform movement. I think the director has it right. It's going to require a great deal of training and a, a new type of in, uh, training, not simply de-escalation training, but it's gonna require training with respect to community engagement, not community policing, because sometimes community policing can morph into or, or devolve into an occupation. Community engagement is different. It's coming to leaders like Larry Ham, and it's coming to co other community leaders and say, tell me about the public safety issues in your community and tell me what we should be doing that we're not doing. Tell us what we're doing that you like that we should be doing more of.
And now you're having a conversation with the community uh, about what policing should look like. And, and I'm happy to say that under Director Ambrose's leadership, we did exactly that as we, as a Newark PD, rewrote policies or wrote new ones like an anti-bias policy, which I might add, most police departments don't have a specific policy against bias. Those policies were shown to the community for their input and their, their comments. Same thing with training. If you're gonna undertake training, ask the community what it likes, what it doesn't like. Ask the community for scenarios. What have you encountered that you didn't like and build it into your training? And uh, uh, city governments cannot cut this money to training because if so, you're gonna get officers, some of whom don't know better, some of whom don't have good lessons and the law reinforced. So I, I think we are at a, um, at a big moment in the United States with respect to policing. I just hope we don't lose the moment and lose momentum. Uh, Mr. Mayor, um, uh, I'll tell our audience here, 844-677-9283. Please give us a call. Tell us what you think. And uh, have a question for one of our guests this evening. Uh, Mr. Mayor, you heard Mr. Harvey call this a potential tipping point at this this moment. Why did it take... I, I asked this question five, six, seven times a day. Why did it take uh, people to see what happened to a George Floyd to realize what's happening to black and brown bodies in America in some of these encounters with police officers? I mean, we've seen videotape of, of uh, the man in Georgia, Brunswick, Georgia, being shot. We saw a, a video in, in, in many other incidents of these uh, uh, these things have been recorded. But why this one? Why now? What, what, what is waking America up about this? Well, I think you're right. This is not the first time Americans saw or the world saw black people being killed by the hands of the police or by hands of racist, period. I think it's the same, uh, you know, uh, moment uh, like Emmett Till. You know, when Emmett Till was, was lynched, there were hundreds of other black people, thousands even, that were lynched prior to Emmett Till, going, going back a century or so. Uh, so uh, the fact that his mother displayed that and showed the world what was happening had a different effect. And now that everybody's home, no sports, no entertainment, no TV, no Broadway, everybody's stuck, you know, they're, they're glued to the TV, glued to the computer uh, because of this pandemic. The, the other pandemic was allowed to unearth itself and uh, people began to see it. Uh, it had to be still and watch it, you know, over and over and over again and, could, and we're not distracted by Broadway or by the NBA or the NFL or National Hockey League or baseball or, or, or movies, you know, or dinner or hanging out. They had to sit home and watch that. And they had to reckon with what, what, what is fact is going on. And so it has, it has two effects. It has the effect of, uh, of, of, of seeing that something needs to change in a pro side, that we need to get something being done. The, the, the other side of it is that it makes people who have no real historical context of our struggle in this country it makes them believe that the police by themselves are our problem. And once we get rid of the police, that, that we're okay. So you have all of these suburban folks who, uh, you know, these other folks who come down and they, they're going to help us the same way they helped out in the South, desegregate lunch counters, but ran away from King in Chicago when he was trying to uh, fight for economic equity uh, at the same time. So they're going to push and push and push uh, and, and, and throw bricks down on a police department and, we're going to do major reforms to the police department, but we're still going to have the same relationship 
uh, to this country that we had prior to the police department. And that's something that uh, we, we definitely are missing in terms of our discussion. And Mr. Ambrose, there's a big push across the country where people, you can see it in the protests, whether it's here in, in, in Newark, here in New Jersey, uh, in neighboring states, where, where young people are saying defund the police. What do you take that to mean? What do you think of that? Well, I, I think, first of all, uh, it's absurd. I think that uh, it's not a utopia anywhere. You need police uh, to respond to, to criminal acts and criminal uh, prevention. Uh, I think there is a need for more social services. Uh, what we've done and demonstrated in Newark uh, with the Newark Street team and, and, and community and the clergy, uh, you know, we have domestic vi- domestic violence issues. We have youth violence issues. Uh, so, so I think that uh, hope one we have with people with addiction. So I think like 25% of our services uh, in, in the city here, uh, police, because we're the only, only service that's available 24 seven. So I believe there are services that police don't have to respond that turn into incidents, uh, people that are trained with mental health. So uh, when they say defund the police, I think it's absurd. You can't do away with a police department, you need a police department. Uh, you know, it's ironic that some of the protesters, when they came in here last week, they called, they called uh, the police when they, they thought they were going to have issues. So I, I think it's absurd. I think, I think doing more social services, uh, more, uh, uh, more uh, uh, things with, with the community and, and youth, Yes, without a, without a doubt. But to just to do away with a police department is absurd. And what percentage of your calls are non-police related to the NPD? Uh, about 25%. About 25%. We get calls for mental health, people with addiction, homeless. Uh, uh, Johnny doesn't want to do his homework. He's incorrigible. Uh, these, really, police with a gun shouldn't be responding to these incidents. Uh, you know, I, I think that social services should be available 24-7 if it be done right. And uh, I'm happy to work with the mayor, and I am. I was already tapped to help help the mayor and work with him, and I will be. Uh, I think that we could utilize police officers to to to, uh, to prevent crime and to re- reduce crime victims, as we did for the last six years. So, you know, there's a need to defund the whole police department. Uh, you know, I think that's very important. Uh, Mr. Mayor, I want to hear what your plan is, but Peter, I see you nodding. Peter, you want to say something? Well, about defunding the police, I I think we have to not get caught up in the the slogan, because I think if you ask 10 people what defund the police mean, you'll get seven different answers. It reminds me of when the first person and many said Black Lives Matter. It was completely confusing to many. Well, what do you mean black lives matter? Does that mean that other lives don't matter? And they, they completely missed the point. Um, I think I, I share many of the views that Director Ambrose just shared with you and the listeners. Uh, when If somebody invades your home in the middle of the night, you want a cop to come and rescue you and protect you. If someone is driving down a street at 90 miles an hour and it's an elementary school at the end of that street with children about to get out of class, you want the police there to say, stop it, buddy, slow down, and we're going to ticket you because that's reckless driving. There are a lot of instances where we really do need police. What we're saying, I think what many people mean, is that communities don't want abusive police. And I think Director Ambrose puts his finger on something. The police can be all things to, to the community. There are services that are better done by other agencies, but we have to be sure that those agencies are available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We cannot have agencies that go off service at 5 p.m. 
Because if people need social services, if people need mental health issues, if they need other kinds of, of assistance, they have to be able to call 11 p.m., 1 p.m., 4 a.m., uh, 1 a.m., 4 p.m., uh, 4 a.m. They have to be able to call in the middle of the night because that's when problems arise. We have 24-7 coverage for fire. We have 24-7 coverage if somebody's in a car accident and they need to get emergency medical attention. We have to also decide what services are, are safe for other agencies to provide. And we also have to make sure that those agencies are, uh, have the right amount of personnel and that they are available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So um, I, I'm not so much caught up in the slogan to fund the police. If by that you mean stop paying for military equipment for use by police officers who should be guardians and not warriors, okay, that's one thing. If you say by that uh, shift these services to another city agency, that's another thing. But if you're talking about living in a world with no police, that just is not our reality uh, anywhere in America. And I just don't think that's realistic. And I don't think it's a solution either. Larry, your response to, to that chant, defund the police. Well, the issue is not defunding the police. Mm. The issue is that black people are being killed like dogs in the street of America. That's the issue. I mean, defunding the police should be distinguished from abolish the police. Defunding the police simply means that you're going to cut a bloated budget. And they did that in Los Angeles. I even think the mayor of Newark, if I read correctly, said he was shifting some money from police to social services. But that's not the issue. The issue is not defunding the police. The issue is that Rayshard Brooks was shot in the back twice and killed. The issue is George Floyd was strangled to death. The issue is a SWAT team kicked in the door, Breonna Taylor, an EMT worker, and shot her eight times in the bed. This is what the issue is. Let's stay on the issue. The issue is how do we stop these killer cops? They're killing us in the street. 1,000 a year, police in America kill more people in one year than the police in Great Britain killed in the entire 20th century. Every 28 hours, a black person is killed by the police in the United States. This is why people are marching. This is why there have been demonstrations in 350 cities in America, in 150 cities and towns in New Jersey, in South Africa, in France, Germany, England, and Australia. They see black people being killed in the streets of America by the people who are supposed to be sworn to protect them. That's the issue. Larry, what do you propose we do about that? We must take away the protection from prosecution that police have that citizens don't have. 99% of the police brutality cases do not end in a conviction. The people who killed Amadou Diallo were not convicted. And we can name a hundred cases like that. Just yesterday, the Supreme Court refused to hear eight cases on qualified immunity. 
This has to do with the degree of immunity from prosecution that police have that citizens don't have. In the Earl Faison case, where Earl Faison was tortured to death in the Orange Police Station on the corner of Tremont and Lincoln, in that case, the police, four of them, five were convicted, four got less than three years, one got less than 10 years, the one that actually sprayed the pepper spray in his mouth. If I had sprayed pepper spray in someone's mouth and it killed them, I would have gotten life. And if I was in the wrong state, I would have gotten a death penalty. The problem is we have two systems of justice in America, one for the police and one for everybody else. And this is what outrages people. And this is what we have to focus on. Not whether, not, not a slogan that some people came up with. We got to focus on how do we stop the cops from killing us like they killed Laquan McDonald, like they killed Amadou Diallo, like they tortured Abner Louima. How do we stop that behavior? Because with all the discussion we've had, nothing really has changed. Mr. We've Mayor, only been talking about change. Mr. Yeah. Mayor, I want to ask you, qualified immunity, where do you stand on that, sir? Well, first, I just uh, first I want to say that there's a difference between defund and abolish, and and it's clear that we need to uh, begin to use uh, some of the monies that we have to direct it towards ways to to reduce and solve crime and violence in the city uh, uh, before police are involved in that. And we're doing that. We've been hiring social workers. We work with New Community Street Team. We've been doing that before it became a slogan, right? So all all we're doing now in the city of Newark is concretizing that through law, putting money aside to make it happen indefinitely, uh, uh, and creating an office so that so it takes place in perpetuity. But I agree with, with Larry. I think that, you know, the purposefully the discussion has been about that, just like the discussion is about that's why I was glad that Newark turned out the way it did, because that the the real headline you want is that people march against police brutality, march for justice. You don't want the headline to be people burn down 40 stores, because that's what they'll be talking about. The fact that you burn these places down and the headline is not the actual context of what you're fighting for. And and, and we've been through this before. And I think that we are uh, seasoned enough and in, in struggle to understand that you do not want the headlines to be to divert away from the real goal that you want. You want reform. You want transformation. You want things to happen. The real issue. So there are issues in the like, for example, I was on Facebook Live. And one of the residents of Newark, who is white, said the issue is not racism, it's police brutality. And because there's no clarity of all this stuff, people say, oh, this, this, this. Yeah, it is police brutality, but it's racism because there's uneven treatment of African-Americans in this country than when other than, than other people by the agency because of racism and white supremacy. That's just, and, we, and we're not clear on that. So the discussion has to be about how do you stop people from committing murder in these communities and getting away with it. What do you need to do? Because this whole, even this whole thing about Camden, CNN is running this whole piece about Camden, saying, oh, Camden got rid of their police department and, and crime went down. That's really a lie because what happened is Camden now has the county police and they have more police in their community now than they did when they when they had the, their own police department. And, and most of them don't even look like the people who live uh, in Camden. So we get these answers from people who are totally divorced from what our real goal is. And our goal 
is to stop this uneven justice that's going on in our community, people being killed and murdered. And by the way, I was out there protesting when uh, 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 Earl Faison was killed. Uh, I was there. And so at the end of the day, uh, I, I, we, we understand that we have to do something to stop that. And if all we do uh, in here does not stop that, because people are marching and they still shooting people. So if, if what we do doesn't stop that, then what we've done is in vain, right? So we have to figure out how to do it. And I think the consent decree is a way to, is 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 uh, a step in the right direction to help us do that. The, the reforms that we're doing in the city of Newark is in a step in the right direction. I think there are a myriad of things that that need to take place. Social services, uh, we need to use money for social services. I agree with that. Training needs to take place. I think we need more people that 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 uh, look like the residents that they serve, that they come from those communities. I think that's important. My, my slogan would be community control of the police more than anything, because I think that's what we need. I think the community has to control the institutions that govern them. If the police are in our community, then the community needs to control that uh, 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 in some form or fashion. I want to get to our caller. Um, this is, uh, I believe his name is Peter on the line here, Peter, thank you very much for calling us. What's your question, your comment, and your concern? Sure. Uh, hi, Michael. Thanks so much, uh, and thanks to the uh, guests for um, for sharing their thoughts. Um, so I've actually attended a number of the community uh, meetings hosted by both the, the police department and also by uh, the, the monitor and the monitoring team. Um, and I guess my question is about racial disparity. You know, Despite all the reforms that have gone on in the Newark Police Department, many of which are uh, are great and a model for other departments, um, racial disparities remain high across almost every kind of interaction that the department tracks. And I'll also say that the data for this is only available because of the uh, consent decree. That most departments in the state do not provide this kind of information to the public. Um, but what they show since January 2016 to present is that black uh, black people are consistently stopped, frisked, searched, arrested, and ha- are victims of use of force at higher rates than Hispanic or white residents. And so I'm curious as to, one, whether you think, um, or rather, one question is why you think that this racial disparity has continued despite all the reforms that have happened in Newark. And second, how can we end some of these racial disparities moving forward? Because you know, uh, if you look at the data, it's it's like uh, looking at a natural law, as though uh, black residents just ha- are stopped, frisked, arrested at higher rates than other races. And do you have any any numbers on that, Peter? By any chance? Sure. So um, over the last six months, and the last six months have been a little bit wonky because of uh, coronavirus and right. the lower number of stops overall. But it's about. Um, Black residents were about 1.6 times more likely to be stopped, uh, 2.7 times more likely to be searched, and 3.7 times more likely to be the victim of a use of force compared to white residents. Um, and even when you just look at the use of force more broadly, you know, of 236 total uses of force over the last six months, 194 were to black residents, uh, 30 were to white Hispanic, and 10 were to white non-Hispanic. Mm. Mr. Ambrose, Mr. Mayor, would you either either like to address that? Thank you, Peter. Mr. Ambrose, we don't hear you. We still don't. Mayor can go first. Oh. Yes, Mr. Mayor. So first, you know, obviously African Americans are the majority, majority in the city, but 
a lot of our, our policing are concentrated uh, uh, in these areas of, 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 of violence and crime, high violence and crime, which, which has a direct correlation with poverty, unemployment, all these other kind of things in those communities, which is why it's important for us to use dollars around Newark Community Street Team, Newark Street Academy, all kinds of other uh, things that we use to employ in those areas to reduce the level of police resident confrontation and begin to do some conflict resolution and other kind of issues in those communities. Uh, and so we need we need money and revenue to expand that, uh, to allow Newark Community Street Team to grow, to be in those communities, to, to reduce the level of violence and crime. Because for example, the, the, the highest number of shootings, the highest number of, of those things happen in, in, in areas of our community particularly in the South and the West, that we need to address. And we, we and some of these problems we don't have to address with police uh, immediately. We don't have to send an army of cops in there, right? There's other services that we need to address in those communities, whether it's employment, whether it's housing, whether it's conflict resolution, uh, what, what, all kinds of things that we have to use. And we just need the, the, the resources and the support uh, to be able to do that, to expand some of the things that have been going on. Because so, we've been seeing a reduction uh, in the South because of those kind of activities. We've been seeing a reduction in the South because of those activities. Uh, but the residents, when, when those activities are high, the residents call for more police. And so you, we, we wind up concentrating on over-policing in those communities. And then you see the, the kind of uneven relationship and things and tension that happens between police and residents in those communities uh, because the residents themselves are calling for more police to be in those neighborhoods because of the high volumes of shooting high volumes of robbery and interactions. So we have to try to solve those problems in other ways and be creative about that uh, before police are involved, which is why we need to, uh, we're using the Office of Violence to be able to go into these communities and do just that. And is your thinking then that if, if you can address some of those social ills out there, that it reduces the opportunity for police to come in contact with residents? Absolutely. Uh, at, least, at least in a negative way, right? Because we have high police contacts now in the city and all of them are not negative contacts. Some of them, we do, uh, you know, trauma circles with police now uh, uh, that are out, that's outside of the consent decree with equal justice and, and other organizations to, to talk to residents about trauma through the new community street team. Uh, those, those, are, those are interactions we want to have in those same areas where there's high shootings, high robberies. And so if you can reduce that, then... The residents are not calling. This is why there's a there's a, a, a people are missing the boat. That's when when they're saying this abolish police because they they're not talking to residents, right? And so people come up with solutions that have nothing to do with the people who live these experiences, right? So the people that are calling for the police in these neighborhoods are the people who live there. If I go to community meetings, they say we want to see the police, and so the the director has to respond to that plus respond to the fact that they had 30, 40 shootings uh, uh, this year in that area. So they begin to concentrate that community with police. And then all the training that they get, that scares the hell out of them and tells them, oh, it's dangerous, it's this, it's that. And so they go in there aggressive, thinking they have to do one thing. And, and, and it creates this kind of negative interaction as opposed to us using other creative alternatives to help us reduce interactions uh, with police that are negative. Mr. Ambrose, what do you think of that? Uh, well, let me say, I, I echo the mayor, and I want to say one thing. Uh, he's exactly right. They're not census data that we're using. They're people, not people that are, uh, uh, these are people that are on the street. Also, look at our victims. Our victims mirror 
the same uh, the same people that live in, in these areas that are that are black or brown. So I think it's important that when you look at the percentage of our victims, they mirror the percentage of our the same percentage of our suspects, uh, and that that's important. So I think the mayor was spot on what he said. Uh, uh, you know, as far as uh, in these communities and. You know, we, we go to communities where there's violence, uh, you know, and we find out that, the, you know, it, it mirrors, again, it mirrors the suspect, mirrors the victim uh, in these communities. I want to talk about something that that that, that the, the George Floyd uh, response uh, uh, almost across the country, almost regardless of of who you talk to, is that you had this officer with his knee pressed on Mr. Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds with his hands in his pocket. Uh, taking his knee and seeming to roll it across uh, Mr. Floyd's neck, even as Mr. Floyd said he couldn't breathe, and it was obvious that he was uh, uh, trying to breathe and and grasping for air. And the other officers, two other officers on Mr. Floyd, and another one with his hands in his pocket, standing and watching the crowd and moving back and forth as to block the view of the cell phone cameras and so forth. And everybody seems to be outraged that these officers didn't render any aid to Mr. Floyd, didn't take officer, uh, the fired officer Chauvin off of Mr. Floyd, and therefore Mr. Floyd died. And everybody's upset that these other officers didn't do anything. What are officers trained to do in, in situations like that when obviously, obviously with what Chauvin was doing was, was, uh, was committing a crime? He was killing someone, uh, as Peter said, as everyone uh, uh, saw this. What are other officers in Newark trained to do when they see another officer engaging in the kind of criminal activity or the commission of a crime that could end someone's life or at least maim someone? Mr. Ambrose, I ask you that question. First of all, we're trained to prevent or intervene. And I think the heinous crime that was committed on national TV by that uh, former officer, uh, that, that murder that everybody watched, uh, that is unacceptable. We all know that. Uh, none of them intervened. Obviously, it was a systemic problem that occurred in that department. Uh, that's why early warning systems are important. Uh, when this is all over with, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's a shame that uh, Mr. Floyd had to lose his life, but I'm sure when the DOJ or, or a monitor goes in there and looks at issues that occurred there, it was probably a systemic and it was the same old, same old, no problem. You know, we have to remember one thing that uh, the chief of police there was from internal affairs when African-American chief came up to the department. Uh, so you look at that. So the intervene is important. That's why we, we came out with an intervene policy. No matter what your rank is, you report the person. And, and no matter if it's your boss or not. And that's important. So to me, uh, that was that's that's what, what what happened on that street is this is the way we do business here. And I think that's important. So when and, you say intervene, intervene means to the, the instant plays itself out and, and the officer goes off eight minutes and 46 seconds, pull them off, pull them off. Just don't say, I think we should turn them on his side, turn them off, you know, t- pull them off. You know that the individual is not breathing right. Uh, you know, no one, inter- they're just as guilty as that officer who put his knee on, 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 on Floyd's neck. They're just as guilty. They were there. They could have done something. They didn't do something. And I wouldn't tolerate that here in the city. Uh, and, I, and I'm sure all the way up to the county level and the state level and the federal level, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't count here. Uh, that was blatant disregard for someone's life. Peter, and, I'm going to ask you, in, some of the, in, in terms of the training and the consent decree, are any of these real-life uh, uh, things that we're seeing being incorporated into any of the, the training uh, um, um, models at all? 
It's a very good question. Um, we assisted Newark in the writing of its training, but most of the work was done by Newark. We provided technical assistance, but one suggestion we made that Director Ambrose embraced immediately, and we were in simpatico on this, was to take video from other places where people, officers had engaged in uh, misconduct or criminal acts and embed it in the use of force training in Newark. So for example, we took video from um, different cities to show to Newark police officers and to ask questions about whether or not this conduct would comply with Newark's revised use of force policies. And let me give you an example of an outcome of that training. You may recall in January of 2019, an officer was engaged in a uh, uh, in a shooting in New York, in, in Newark. Yes. And uh, a person died. That officer was later charged um, that spring. But if you look at the video tape, there had to have been 12 to 15 officers involved and only one shot. And only one shot at a moving car. That's the officer who got indicted. If you also uh, give it attention, you'll notice that an officer in the car with that officer was urging him to calm down. So th that is an effect of really good use of force policies, really good use of force training, and good leadership, because you need management to reinforce this. You know, one of the, um, you have a couple of breakdowns in Minneapolis. You know that the Department of Justice did a report on the Minneapolis police, I think in 2015, and very little changed. As Director Ambrose has pointed out, the new police chief right now sued his own department for race discrimination and won. And he is now in charge of the police. But Director Ambrose makes a very, very good point. Officers must uh, prevent the killing of citizens. And so what the officers should have done on the street is they should have pulled Chauvin off of George Floyd. They should have said, you can't do this. They knew it was not consistent with policy. It was not consistent with their training. They should have pulled him off. And then they should have reported him to Internal Affairs so that Internal Affairs could have conducted an investigation. So. Uh, these scenarios, to, to answer your question directly, uh, these scenarios of officer behavior in other jurisdictions have been embedded in the training in Newark. And uh, as that training gets updated periodically, I suspect that more and more video is going to be included so that you can give officers real incidents that have occurred in the United States and ask them the questions, uh, namely, is this consistent with our policy? If it's not consistent, why is it not consistent? If you think it is consistent, why do you think it is consistent? And what should the officers do? And this, um, this scenario with George Floyd uh, should be used by departments across the nation to ask the question, not so much about Chauvin, because everyone saw that as a criminal act, to ask the question about what the other officers should have been doing. 
and what are their obligations in this situation? Yeah, because the witnesses there, the people who were recording, were begging the other officers to to intervene. You are listening to Newark Today on WBGO 88.3 FM and online at WBGO.org. The number to call here if you want to participate in the conversation is 844-677-9283. Larry, I want to get your response in a second after we go to this caller. Uh, this is Frederick from Pennsylvania. Frederick, what's your question, your comment, or your concern? Mr. Ambrose, it's 844, and I know you have to leave, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um my question, I guess it goes back to the deep funding. Yes. We know that uh, the Pentagon is directly connected to police training and providing them with surplus uh, um, weapons and materials. In the deep funding, do you think that there would be any pushback from the Pentagon since they do have these surpluses and it would impede them distributing it? Mr. Ambrose, would you like to answer that quickly before you have to go? Just uh, can you just repeat that? Yeah, he was. He was. He says that the Pentagon has a lot of surplus military equipment, and does he think that the Pentagon would try to curtail selling some of that to local police departments? Well, I think I think I'm, I'm not. I mean, us here in Newark, we don't have any of it, so I can't I can't elaborate on it. The only thing that we ever got uh, was the helicopter years and years ago. So I can't comment on it. I know some years ago there was something that came out that uh, they're not giving it anymore to surplus stuff out. So, you know, we don't partake in it here in Newark, so I, I really couldn't uh, give him a, a, an answer either way on it. Thank you, Mr. Ambrose. Thank you, Frederick from Pennsylvania. Larry, I want to get your take on you made an emphatic point about uh, this is about stop killing black people, police killing black people. You heard what Mr. Harvey said about the training um, and, and using real-life situations to train officers. Um, what do you think of that? Is, is that going to have the kind of benefit that you're you're pursuing? Larry, you're muted right now. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> I, I support the training. I support the bias training. I support the de-escalation training but it's not gonna stop police brutality. New Jersey has a very serious police brutality problem. This has been documented in the series done by the Star-Ledger called The Force Report. It has been documented in the series done by the Asbury Park Press called The Shield. In 10 years, New Jersey has had to settle over $200 million in police brutality suits. So police brutality is a serious problem here in New Jersey, and we have to deal with it. What will stop police brutality? Well, here's some things that will stop police brutality. One, we need body cams on all police throughout the state of New Jersey. It should be the law. We need body cams, but you know what else we need? We need a law that if cops turn those cams off, they go to jail. If cops take their badges off, they go to jail. If cops cover up their ID numbers, they go to jail. If cops interfere with the right of citizens to film them, a right that has been upheld by the Supreme Court, they are disciplined and they go to jail. See, 
they're not going to stop until they understand that if they keep doing these things, they'll lose their job, their shield, their gun, their license, their seniority, their pension, and their freedom. You have to put things in place that make it clear to them that they will be penalized. So I, I support all of these things that people, but we're, we're not zeroing in on what has to be zeroed in on. You know, we had some serious police brutality cases and talk about George Floyd, talk about Eric Garner. We had an Eric Garner in Newark, his name was Warren Lee. We had a, we had a George Floyd in Newark, his name was Warren Lee. He was strangled to death by police. This was, this was before uh, Mayor Baraka uh, took office. Shakan Nance, who was shot on West Bigelow. Uh, Rashid Fuquan Moore, who was shot while si shot to death, sitting in a car stuck in a snowbank. Uh, Basia Farrell, shot in the back on Tillinghast in the South Ward in Newark. Strawberry Daniels, the mayor himself, was involved in organ way before he became mayor. He organized a march out of the South Ward of Newark to protest the murder of Strawberry Daniels on Chadwick and Clinton. It continues. I mean, we but before we had finished protesting Ahmaud Arbery, they killed uh, uh, Breonna Taylor. And you know what? Here we are almost 90 days after we don't even know the names. When these officers engaged in this kind of behavior, their names should be revealed. You know why the other officers didn't interfere with the murder of George Floyd? Because there's a culture of policing. There's a culture that they were on like a training day and he was their supervising officer. They weren't gonna interfere with him. You know why they, they won't break the blue code of silence? I remember, I was in the courtroom when the officers that killed Earl Faison were sentenced. You know what the judge had to say, Lifflin? He said if there were any threats against Officer Jackson, who had testified in the case, that any harm done to him he would be prosecuted to the full, they would be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Jackson had to walk around 24 hours a day with FBI protection. You know why? To protect him from gangs? No, to protect him from other cops that had threatened his life because he dared to break the blue wall of silence. The police are protected by laws at the federal level, the state level, the municipal level, they have uh, 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 provisions in their contract and they have a culture that all work in tandem to keep this police. We got to bust it up. And until until we have lawmakers, the, the, the ones that are not being discussed, we're talking about the police and we're talking about the activists. You know who the people we're not talking about? Lawmakers. We're not talking about the lawmakers, the lawmakers who need to have the courage to make the laws necessary to end police brutality. Thank you, Larry. Uh, let's go on the line now. This is Bill Payne, the brother of Donald Payne Jr. Mr. Payne, thank you for calling, sir. Uh, hi, how are you? Uh, Doing well, sir. The moment I'd like to say that I agree 1,000% with what uh, Larry has just laid out. There's no question about it. If, in fact, we have people who serve as police officers in our communities, but who have no respect for or no knowledge of the people they're protecting, then we're going to continue having these kinds of problems. It would seem to me that part of uh, and talking about training, we have to make sure it's very, very clear the things that would help us uh, to have police departments, police officers respect and protect the people there. We can we can train people. One of the problems we have is recruitment. 
I know there was a time when, in fact, people were recruited to the police officer departments who didn't live in the town. And one of the important things is that if a person doesn't live in the town and they do type of nine-to-five job and do not reside in the town, then they're not going to have the kind of interest and concern about the, the, the town in which they're protected. The other thing is that we have to make sure that the people, they need to learn something about the folks that live there. They need to know about them. They need to see the people that they're protecting who are also human beings as well. If, in fact, you live there, you grow up with, with those people, uh, then you have an understanding of who they are, and you will not treat them as if they're trash. And that's, unfortunately, as long as we do not require police officers to reside in the towns in which they live, then they're not going to have the kind of interest and concern for it. They're not going to know their neighbors, and so they'll see these people not as not as, uh, as neighbors, as friends, but as strangers, and we have to make sure we do not recruit people. We, we, it's hard to get rid of a police officer. I think the recruitment is the extremely important thing to make sure there are tests that you can take to, to measure whether or not a person has uh, uh, some kind of hatred, et cetera, to minorities. And if, in fact, we have done, if we hire people and bring them on who have no regard for their community, then that's what we're going to have this trouble in life strongly suggest that these police officers be required to reside in the town in which they're going to be uh, protecting the people. And I think that'll bring about a change uh, in the relationship between the uh, police officers uh, and the citizens in which they're hired to protect. But I think that we can do that and we have to do it uh, because uh, those are people that are uh, human beings just like themselves. They go home to the suburban homes too often and do not have any concern. But that's extremely important. Mr. Payne, Mr. Payne, thank you very much for calling, sir. Let me get the mayor's response to that. Mr. Mayor, I've I've heard you say some of these uh, same things uh, before out there. Right. So there's actually a a bill that that's uh, in the state house that is floating around uh, that that asks for five years at least for police and fire to live in the city uh, for various reasons. Not it's not uh, permanent and it's uh, based on if it's enabling legislation, so it allows you to do it. It's, it's, it, it does not force you to do it uh, in your municipalities, and I think that the legislature needs, in this time period, needs to enact that immediately. But I do want to say two things. One, uh, in terms of you know piggybacking off what Larry talked about. One, I think that um, f- first, we, we there needs to be uh, people need to see that there is a swift and immediate punishment for people who break the law. People who are supposed to uphold the law and they break the law, there needs to be swift and immediate punishment. The longer, the longer it takes, and we're not saying you deny people due process and none of that stuff. We're just saying that there has to be swift and immediate because everybody deserves due process. The problem is out in the street, these guys aren't getting due process. They just get murdered. And, and, and so people need to see swift and immediate due process. But then you need to see there has to be all the other reforms that are happening serve to change the culture of the police department. And that's basically what needs to happen going forward. We need to change the culture of the police department. In my mind, simply by seizing it, right? We need community control of it. We need to put our folks in there. We need to put our people in there. We need to make sure people are trained. We need to make sure, when I say our people, I mean people from these communities who have sympathy and empathy for the folks who live here, who believe these folks are human beings, right? Who have relatives in these communities, who, who know people in this neighborhood, who might attend church in this community. That's like in other people's cities, right? They attend church here. They grandmother, they mother live here. 
so they have uh, some level of empathy and sympathy for the people in these communities. That that that's what we need, and the policies uh, uh, have to reflect that. And then there has to be room. I think that all cities need a civilian complaint review board. They need a civilian complaint review board because the military has civilian oversight. So I mean, the police should have civilian oversight. It's just what I believe. The consent decree calls for civilian oversight. We ought to have civilian oversight. It's the only way you're going to get people to begin to trust the institution after decades and decades of, of denying justice. They, you have to have some civilian oversight with teeth. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Zaire, we're going to get to you in just a second. I'm going to get to Mr. Ambrose. The Mr. Mayor mentioned about consent decrees, and I know you have something to say about that, Mr. Ambrose. Uh, let, let me first say that uh, uh, the consent decree, I think that when, when everyone heard that there was a consent decree that was definitely coming to Newark, people panicked because we're going to have an oversight. I wasn't here at the time, but I have to say that uh, consent decrees are needed in, in departments that have systemic issues, weak leadership. Uh, and, you know, w- when you talk about the, the changes that were done by, by the consent decree, uh, you know, Barbie and his group, when you talk about the community part of it, uh, our dividends paid on May 30th when they tried to uh, take over the first precinct. Our officers were trained because of that training that we had in de-escalation. So I think that, you know, it, it's it's a word that no chief or police director wants to hear, uh, but you have to look at it and say, when you look at our lawsuits, uh, and I'm looking at my lawsuits, you know, in 2000, since we have Mr. Harvey here, we had 18 lawsuits versus 48 for the same time period before uh, $51,000 we paid on lawsuits versus $1.4 million. Uh, there's things that can happen with a consent decree that normally, if you're mandated, won't happen if you don't have someone here demanding you to do it. So I think that, um, you know, in some police departments that, that, that have systemic issues and that have a weak leadership, uh, that the accountability, if, if you have a weak leader that can't hold people accountable and, re, and they're not looking to do reforms, then a consent decree is necessary. And I have to say that, uh, you know, it, here in, in, in New York, I, I think that it, we're not done. We're not perfect. We have a long way to go. But I, I think it's paying off. We're going to talk a little bit more about the consent decree um, after 9 o'clock. Um, Mr. Ambrose, you mentioned the first precinct, the night of the May 30th protest. And, um, Larry, uh, we were out talking um, near Shaq's Theater uh, last week for the PBS uh, special uh, American mm-hmm. Black and White that aired on Monday. And what was interesting, there was a 26-year-old man who was from the neighborhood who came up mm-hmm. to us and was talking to us about what happened on May 30th, talking to us about Trayvon Martin, and talking about uh, the night at the first precinct. And this was really interesting. And Zaire, hold on, I'm going to get to you in just a second. And Zaire, I'm going to have to get to you after uh, the 9 o'clock hour here. But uh, just hold on, because we want to hear what you have to say. What was interesting about this 26-year-old man talking about what's taking place at the first precinct is that he said we came face to face with the police yes the police had on helmets yes they had on face shields but he said we noticed that the officers standing there protecting the precinct did not have on belts holsters with guns and things like that they stood there there's a picture on i think it was patch.com of some young men reaching out and touching one of the officers and the officer standing there engaging them and smiling. The 26-year-old man I talked to for this special said that at the first precinct that night, there were people there who wanted to burn down the precinct the same way the precinct had been burned in Minneapolis. And he said there were people there from Newark telling them, 
you are not going to burn down anything in this city. You certainly aren't going to burn down our precinct. And they determined that those folks were not from Newark. A lot more to talk about when we come back. Mr. Ambrose, I know you have to leave. Mr. Mayor, I know you have to check out as well. Uh, just stick around. We'll have Peter Harvey at uh, 9 o'clock and Larry Ham as well. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Steve Adubato. You know, we all love a good conversation, whether it's with a TV personality. It is my honor and pleasure to introduce uh, Nora O'Donnell. Great. Political leader. It is my honor, my pleasure to introduce the mayor of the great city of Newark, Brick City, Roz Baraka. How you doing, man? I'm great, man. Or an award-winning musician, backed by popular demand, Christian McBride. It's got to be the most powerful tool in American culture right now. Here are my compelling conversations with movers, shakers, and newsmakers on one-on-one -on -one with me, Steve Adubato. Saturday morning at 6 a.m. on 88.3 FM and WBGO.org. Why WBGO? It's the soundtrack to my day. As a Newarker, they're the station that talks about what's going on in my life. Because public radio gives me a voice. Music always makes me feel good. <laughs> WBGO exposes kids to music they'll never hear anywhere else. The legends like Miles and Nina, they still live on WBGO. That's why. How is only with your continued financial support. Call 1-800-499-9246 or go to WBGO.org. WBGO Newark, 88.3 FM and WBGO.org. You're listening to Newark Today, and we want to hear from you. Call us at 1-844-677-9283. That's 1-844-677-9283. Welcome back to Newark Today on WBGO 88.3 FM. I'm your host, Michael Hill of NJTV News. Got a programming note coming up at 9.30. Following Newark Today, we'll air the two-hour documentary, Music of the Civil Rights and Black Consciousness Movement, which weaves together more than 60 historically significant pieces of music with a compelling narrative from award-winning journalist Esther Armagh. So stick around for that. Uh, the mayor had to leave. The public safety director had to go as well, but still with us. Larry Hamm, the co-chair of the People's Organization for Progress, and Peter Harvey, the federal independent monitor overseeing the reforms at the Newark Police Department. Let's uh, quickly get to Zaire. He's been very patient on the phone with us. Uh, Zaire is from Newark. Zaire, thank you for, uh, for calling us. What is your question, your comment, or your concern? Hello. Hi. How are you? Doing well. Hello. Um, so is there uh, a continuity plan set up for North Police Department after uh, COVID-19 disrupted some of the uh, department's operations? Um, uh, Mr. Ambrose has left. Mr. Harvey, do you have an answer for that by any chance? Uh, I, I, I do not. What okay. I can tell you is that we had to suspend certain audits that are required under the consent decree. And once we are able to have group meetings in Newark and with the police, 
we'll simply resume our operations. And I suspect that Newark PD will resume its operations. I don't know, know that they have a special plan for it. Um, I, I don't know that they need a special plan for it. I think once the state of emergency has been lifted, people will go back to their regular duties uh, at, on their regular shifts and uh, the work will continue. Uh, Peter, I know that you just came out with the 13th quarterly report just within the last yes. week or so. And, uh, and I was just reading it before the show. And it was interesting to, to, to see in writing the impact COVID-19 has had on implementing this consent decree. Yes. Well, there were a number of audits that were scheduled. You know, under the consent decree, the way it works is you write the policy uh, first. Newark writes the policy or revises an existing policy. Newark then writes training that accompanies that policy. And then uh, Newark uh, puts the officers on the street and they uh, act according with the new policy or the revised policy and the new training or the revised training. You wait 90 days and you come in and audit to determine whether or not uh, the tasks that the police officers should be uh, engaging in on the street are actually being undertaken by the officers. So you take a random sample of various tasks. Newark PD has a, a requirement that they must meet a 95% pass rate. So we were in the midst of uh, conducting the first audit of the stops on the street by police of civilians that had to be suspended. Secondly, we were uh, doing the second training records audit. And, and that's just an audit to determine whether or not the records of the training that the officers have gotten have been maintained and properly um, recorded. Uh, we were also conducting a second audit of uh, body-worn camera usage by police officers. And we have begun, almost have begun, a first audit of NPD's use of force. But all of that work had to be suspended because we could not gather in, well, let, let's back up. New Jersey was the second hardest hit state in the United States behind New York with respect to the pandemic. Governor Murphy declared a state of emergency. Mayor Baraka declared a state of emergency. We all have been under stay-at-home orders pretty much since uh, March 13, maybe the following week. So as a result, uh, we could not gather in meetings in Newark to look at documents and to talk with Newark police officers with respect to the work they were doing. And as you noted, a number of Newark officers were sick. And because of th those illnesses, other officers had to take over their shifts, had to take over their work. And the department was really, um, it managed pretty well, but it was really stretched thin. So um, the director asked that we suspend the audits. We said we would suspend the audits and wait until the pandemic uh, emergency has ended and then we will simply resume operations. Peter, in the long run, what impact is this going to have on meeting the requirements of the consent decree by the time the window closes on, on the implementation of the, of the consent well, decree? Well, remember, it's, it's a five-year consent decree. Newark's fourth-year anniversary was May 5th. Their fifth-year anniversary will be May 5th, 2021. Our fourth-year anniversary as the monitoring team is July 12th. 2020. Our fifth year anniversary is July 12, 2021. There is 
language in the consent decree that allows it to be extended. So it, do, it just doesn't cut off automatically. You don't just reach the five-year period and you have unfinished work to, to do and the consent decree ends. There, uh, The Department of Justice and Newark negotiated language that they put into the consent decree that allows it to be extended for a two-year period. So, Larry, I want to ask you about some of the things that are in this in this uh, th- this report, and uh, but that's after I asked Peter about this. Peter, in, in terms of the thirteenth quarterly report, you have some language in here that raises some eyebrows in terms of uh, the Newark Police Division and issues potentially with bias-free training and community policing training. Would you go through those quickly, if you would? Well, sure. Uh, the bias-free training uh, started. Um, actually in March, and it had to be suspended because of the coronavirus uh, threat. Um, The bias-free training uh, started with Newark hiring an outside consultant who actually knows how to do this work and who has done it with a lot of police departments with a large degree of success. And what happens is the training, the bias-free policy has been written. The training has to be tailored to uh, capture circumstances in Newark. And so uh, Newark PD went out to the community, uh, discussed scenarios that um, the community had encountered that the community thought reflected bias in the police department. Those scenarios were built into the training and the training began March, on or about March 3rd. It just had to be suspended. But it, it took a little while but I'm happy to say that the, at least the training got started. Now, the second phase, there's bias-free policing training. The second phase of it is community engagement training. Uh, I distinguish community engagement from community policing in this respect. Community engagement is a process by which you have periodic conversations with the community, and you do it on a precinct-by-precinct precinct basis. The a director, Director Ambrose, has developed a community engagement strategy that has quarterly, semi-annual, and annual requirements that the command staff of each precinct must, must engage in. So, for example, they have to engage with community leaders. They have to engage with community stakeholders. They have to engage with thought leaders in the community to find out what their public safety issues are, what the Newark Police uh, may be doing well in that particular precinct, what the Newark police may not be doing so well in that pre- precinct, and develop a strategy to do the work in a way that provides greater safety to the public. So there's bias-free policing training and also community engagement training. Newark is undertaking one uh, that got interrupted by the coronavirus. That's bias-free policing training. The second one is coming uh, as well, and that's community engagement training tailored specifically to the Newark community. And Larry, when you hear this kind of training taking place in Newark, bias-free, community policing training, community engagement training, are those the kind of things that you think that could that could ward off some of these violent incidents that lead to black and brown men being killed in, in a place like um, Newark or a place like New Jersey or America? They help. And I have to say this since the just see i was there in newark when 
there was a wave of police brutality cases, you know, from the 1990s all the way up through the time that the Justice Department came in. The Justice Department came in because there were so many protests and so many police brutality cases. We were working with Deborah Jacob, who was the executive director of the ACLU at that time. And we were referring a lot of cases because families would come to us in our organization. We don't have legal services. So we would refer them to the ACLU. So the ACLU, you know, they take, they do class action suits. So they sent a letter to the Justice Department and told the Justice Department to come in, that they needed to come in. The Justice Department came in. And I have, I have to say something. From the point that it was known that the Justice Department was, in fact, in Newark investigating, you could see, however minor it may have been, a change taking place. And I want to commend the work of uh, Peter Harvey, his team uh, that assists him as the federal independent monitor. And for those who don't know who, who've been listening, a consent decree is a schedule of reforms uh, that must be implemented by the police department in Newark. And the work of that implementation is overseen by the independent monitor, in this case, Peter Harvey, who, by the way, was the first black uh, state attorney general for the state of New Jersey. So yes, the answer is yes. Do these things help? They help. And they probably have uh, helped police work through and some incidents without having to kill people. Although there have been a, a couple of incidents in Newark, but they haven't been occurring at the rate they were before uh, the Justice Department came, came in. And this leads me to ask this question, what will happen when the consent decree is up next year and the federal monitor's term is up, and let's just say hypothetically that it's not extended, the question is, will Newark continue to go in the good direction or without this federal oversight, will they in fact lurch back? Which is what happened to the state troopers of New Jersey. I, this is one man's opinion, by the way. The state troopers of New Jersey were under a consent decree. And, you know, we're still, and since the decree was lifted, you know, we've seen other incidents and there was just a shooting of a young man on the turnpike the other day. Maurice Gordon. Maurice Gordon. Maurice Gordon. So, uh, yes, these things help. But again, until we eliminate the two systems of justice that exist in this country, the police are going to continue. These things are going to continue. And I really urge people to read the force report done by the Star Ledger and the Shield done by the Asbury Park Press, because a lot of these police brutality cases don't get into the newspapers. A lot of complaints don't are not do not see the light of day, do not go beyond internal affairs. But there's a lot of police brutality. New Jersey has its fair share. Right now, we have demonstrations every Monday in front of the federal building in Newark where the U.S. attorney is because we're calling on the U.S. attorney for the state of New Jersey to investigate the police brutality shooting deaths of Abdul Kamal, of Jerome Reed, of Kashad Ashford, and Radaz Hearns. There should be civil rights investigations launched into those cases. And we're calling for a reopening of the Earl Faison case because they, the police, the orange police, five officers 
Orange Police Department killed Faison, but they were not convicted. See, this is the system. They were not convicted of homicide because the the county prosecutor at that time refused to investigate the case. And it's the county prosecutor that has to bring the homicide charges. So we demanded the federal government came in and the federal government successfully prosecuted them on civil rights violations and conspiracy. Larry, I have to ask you, uh, it was an extraordinary, it seemed like an extraordinary move yesterday in Fulton County, Atlanta, Georgia, when the prosecutor stepped forward and laid out these 11 charges against Officer Rolf for killing Rayshard Brooks. Uh, one of the analysts on CNN, Joey Jackson, I think his name is, a legal analyst, said this is what accountability looks like. Is that so? Yes, that is so. It was swift action on the part of the mayor and the county prosecutor uh, uh, to um, charge those officers, to, to fire them, and then charge them. And uh, Mayor Baraka has done similar things, too. Uh, there, there was a case where the police, I think, broke a young man's arm and didn't call the EMT. They were fired the next day by the city of Newark. This is what accountable leadership does. And we need more mayors and leaders of, of cities uh, to do as these mayors have done. Peter, your take Michael, on let, yes. let me share something with you about yes. that. And you probably saw it in the 13th quarterly report, which, yes. by the way, um, covers the period January 1, 2020 through March 31, 2020. Yes. Uh, uh, during the 2019 year, 19 Newark police officers were suspended for varying uh, periods of time. Three officers were terminated. 20 civilians working for the police division were also suspended for varying periods of time. That discipline is reflective of the benefits of a consent decree and of the leadership of the Newark Police Division. You know, when you have good leadership, uh, discipline happens, aggressive internal inf affairs investigations happen. And uh, I think uh, both you and Larry Ham have it right that that is what accountability looks like. See, one thing that has changed, and this is why uh, voting is, is very important in a lot of communities, it makes a difference who sits in the district attorney's chair. It makes a difference who sits in the attorney general's chair. It makes a difference who sits in the mayor's chair. And what you're, you're seeing now across the nation in some cities, is district attorneys that will take action against obvious criminal behavior when committed by police officers or anybody else. Because what the, the, the legal evaluation is, and I think it could not have been better said than said by the Fulton County District Attorney that covers the city of Atlanta. He said, the question that I have to answer and the, and the question that I'm examining is, at the time the officer used deadly force, was he doing it to protect his own life or the life of a third person? That was the legal question. And I'm glad that he framed it that way because that is the inquiry. And if your answer to that is no, then there is no right to use deadly force. And the other thing that you look at is you look at the reports that are filed by police officers to see if the other officers on the scene told the truth. 
you saw an incident a couple of years ago in North Charleston, uh, South Carolina, which was very similar to this. There was a bit of a scuffle. Uh, the uh, African-American man who was stopped for a traffic violation starts to run away, and he was shot in the back as he was running away. And what was worse there is that the officer actually took the taser and dropped it next to uh, the body as if that. to suggest as yep. if to suggest that somehow he was he had used this taser on the officer and the United States Attorney's office indicted him he was fired within 48 hours he was indicted and he ultimately pleaded guilty but but that's what well, you have to do that so that the community has confidence that there's going to be one set of rules and they apply to everybody they're not going to be these two sets of rules and we're not going to cover for illegal behavior because that is not the oath you swore. I tell you something else that police departments have to begin paying attention to, domestic violence, where officers go home and beat their girlfriends, beat their wives. That is an assault. It should be the subject of an arrest and a prosecution because once an officer is arrested and prosecuted and successfully for assault, on a girlfriend or a wife, under federal law, that officer can no longer carry a gun, which means you can't wow. be a police officer. Wow. And so we have to stop giving a pass to men who beat women, and especially if they're law enforcement officers. Let's think about what that term is, law enforcement officer. Number one, you should know what the law is. Number two, you should enforce it. But when you break it, especially by committing a criminal act, there must be a consequence, and it has to be immediate. You know, there there are, I, I had a conversation, my, one of my producers had a conversation. Yvonne, please hold on, we'll get to your call here. I want to finish this thought. But the, there was a, a, a an interview uh, my producer, uh, NJTV News, did with uh, James Stewart, the president of the Newark uh, FOP, and uh, Stewart made the point that um, th th there's this perception out there, and he calls it a wrong perception, that, that police are this brutal army out there. And when you start talking about uh, prosecuting officers and, and so forth, there's a pushback in this country for people who don't come face to face with police and don't have the kind of encounters that result in, in, in people being maimed and killed and so forth and think that that to hear a discussion like this that 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 the discussion and, and the thoughts and the protests people are picking on the police that they have it wrong and uh larry uh, address that quickly if you could we have a few minutes left well the facts speak for themselves police kill on average a thousand people Sorry, yeah. <laughs> police kill a thousand people on average every year. Now, I said this at the beginning of the program. I'll just say it again. A thousand every year. About 38 percent of those are black people. By the way, the people that they kill are people of all races. But we're only 13 percent of the population. But we're 38 percent of those killed by the police. And we're 48 percent of those who are killed and were unarmed at the time that they were killed. So it's like every 28 hours, a black person dies. So, you know, the police can say whatever they want. The fact is our people are being killed like dogs in the street. 
That's how they killed George Floyd. That's how Ahmaud Arbery was killed. And although it was a retired officer, one of the two men that hunted down Ahmaud Arbery was a retired officer. Larry? So the, the yes. facts speak for themselves. Let me get to this call. This is Yvonne uh, on the line with us. Yvonne, go ahead and uh, 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 thank you for calling and tell us what's your question, your comment, or your concern. Hi, so my question is for uh, Larry. He has a long history in Newark, and he mentioned the excessive force complaints uh, dating back to the 90s, Earl Faison, and many more. He also mentioned the ACLU complaint um, that was filed with the DOJ. How does he reconcile that Ambrose was either the chief or the director during, during that period of the complaints that he mentioned and during the petition from the ACLU and that he now is the person that is tasked with um, implementing the reforms of the consent decree? Larry, you heard that? Yeah, I heard it, but yeah. I didn't hire Ambrose. The city of Newark hired Ambrose. So you, you need to take that up with the city of Newark. Um, I'm an activist fighting police brutality. I fight it in Newark. I fight it wherever, whenever families come to me. So uh, if Ambrose was the director, then that's the record. The record speaks for itself. But also McCarthy was the director. And McCarthy brought the broken windows style of policing that he used in New York City. And that vastly aggravated uh, the situation. I'm not here to take up for anybody. I'm here to say police brutality must end. Period. Mr. Harvey, what's next for the the consent decree in terms of looking at uh, let me ask you, uh, Mr. Harvey, any response you have to Yvonne's uh, concern? No, no, I, I no, no, I don't. I, I, I can I can say this, that we should always avoid making group accusations and we should always avoid uh, arguing the point that all of anything is bad or all of anything is good. I think we have to look at police conduct as it occurs, incident by incident, and we have to evaluate each incident and each officer involved in that incident by the established policies and the established training and the state law and the federal law. And that is the evaluation that has to be undertaken. So um, uh, I think that with respect to uh, the, the leadership in Newark, we have really good political leadership and we have really good uh, leadership of the Newark Police Division. And the, the evidence of that is reflected in the success of the consent decree. And the fact that uh, Director Ambrose really pushed the department to embrace the consent decree and then he put people in charge of it who actually are implementing its terms. And it's not so easy. It's, it's very difficult to change police culture top to bottom, and especially in a department that has done things a certain way, but it's happening in Newark. And the best evidence of the different relationship that the community has with the Newark police was found in the demonstrations that you have been talking about earlier and that Larry Hamm have been, has been talking about earlier. That is, Newark was a national and international model of how to engage in peaceful protest without violence and without looting and without burning. And that's an, a reflection of the day-to-day -day experiences that people in this city have with the police. That's very different than it was 10 years ago, 
15 years ago, 25 years ago, 30 years ago. And that's a reflection. That's what a consent decree can do. You know, I had in a conversation, I'll go back to this 26-year-old man I interviewed over by uh, by Shaq's Theater, and I asked him about, uh, he, he said that, again, 26-year-old African-American man from Newark Central Ward, and he was talking about the difference in Newark now, and he says that the interactions with the police are different. They're, they're just, and he said he can tell, they're different. And that was uh, uh, evidenced by what happened at the first precinct on the night of May 30th when officers came face to face uh, with some of the folks uh, who were there and there was no report of any violence or, or, or confrontations or anything. If anything, the people from Newark were telling the folks to 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 stop, to stop uh, some of the things that were going to take place and prevent those things. And I asked him, I said, so what is the difference in Newark? I mean, if you're talking about this different interaction with the police department, what's the difference? And he said, the mayor. As plain as day, he said the mayor. Uh, we have uh, less than a minute to go here. Larry, we'll get your final thoughts, if you would, please. Well, my final thoughts are, um, uh, one, I just want to say this with regard to consent decrees. Um, the federal government should sub- should provide funds. When we have these consent decrees on our police departments, uh, I'm all for it, you know, straighten out the police department, but if the federal government mandates it, then the federal government should put up funds to help implement the reforms uh, in the center decrees. And finally, the greatest antidote to police brutality is educated, organized, and mobilized people. And Peter, uh, 15 seconds, if you would, please. Well, thank you for inviting me on the show, and I'm happy to share our views. And I urge everyone to read the quarterly reports that are issued and help the police implement the consent decree. They can't do it without community engagement. I want to thank Peter Harvey, Larry Hamm, Anthony Ambrose, the public safety director, and the mayor, of course. Remember a programming note, Newark Today, coming up after this, will air the two-hour documentary music of the civil rights and black consciousness movement. I want to thank the team here, the staff, of course, Corey Goldberg, Chris Tobin, David Tallickson, Alexandra Hill, and Doug Doyle, our executive.